before I give a Dharma talk, I either drink a cup of chamomile tea, chamomile tea, or um, no tea or green tea. So I look at my energy level and I decide what will be skillful. Today I drank green tea, but as I was bouncing around the staff room before I came in here, I wondered if I'd miscalculated. <laughs> so we'll see, it might be a little extra energy tonight. I'm sure some of the, you have had similar um, struggles in your meditation about like how much caffeine and when and what happens. Tonight, uh, tonight's talk is about clinging and non-clinging at the six sense doors. It's kind of a half of a, a dependent origination talk. So there's a teaching um, on the 12 steps of dependent origination. Um, uh, and I'm going to teach about half of them. So that's another way of looking at it. We're basically always teaching about clinging and non-clinging. Sometimes we label our talks that way and sometimes we don't, but it all comes down to that. Greg gave a talk early on on um, the liberation, liberation through non-clinging, and next week uh, Brian might give a talk on the Four Noble Truths, which is also about clinging, non-clinging, craving, all of that. And the reason why we talk about it so much is that the Buddha taught that the um, deepest kind of happiness or peace or what our hearts really yearn for is this um, heart or freedom of non-clinging. I write um, a lot of my Dharma talks on my voice recognition software on my iPad. And uh, it doesn't quite get non-clinging. <laughs> it, it likes to come up with non-cleaning. <laughs> Which I really don't know what non-cleaning is. I, I <laughs> there is a story about um, years ago at the at the a Zen center in San Diego. Um, people were saying a few words about their practice and how it had helped their lives, and you know, a bunch of people talked about psychological changes and increased patience and compassion and beautiful things. And apparently, one woman finally. Uh, took the cake when she said, well, my apartment is much cleaner. <laughs> so non-cleaning or non-clinging. Let's, let's go with non-clinging. There are uh, differing, differing interpretations in uh, the different Buddhist traditions about what um, exactly enlightenment means, but they all seem to agree on one thing. These are the secret teachings. The deepest kind of happiness or peace comes from letting go or non-clinging, not clinging, letting go. These are basically not-self teachings also, anatta teachings, because the self is really created through the process of clinging, and we'll see this when we go through some of the states of the um, stages or the steps of dependent origination. That through clinging to the manifestations of heart and mind or these six sense um, bases, we create that sense of self. We construct it. We become. I often say to people, if you 
really want to understand anatta, uh, the teachings of anatta, just explore clinging and non-clinging. I'll take you there. I do have to share with you, however, uh, anatta or uh, not-self joke that I saw recently. Somebody sent it to me. There's a picture of a guy at a computer, and he says, I Google myself, I get a hit, therefore I am. (laughs) A modern, um, (laughs) not self. uh (laughs) So what do we mean by um, letting go or non-clinging? I think it might be good to explore this in more detail, because you hear this word non-clinging, and like, well, what does that mean? How do we do it? How do we let go? So first of all, I want to make it clear that we're not talking about letting go of things or experiences because they're already speeding past at quite a rapid rate on their own. (laughs) They change just fine on their own. You may have noticed that. We live in this world of unrelenting change. What we're letting go of is the attachment or the, um, yeah, clinging attachment, sometimes the words are used interchangeably, the holding on or the resisting living in this kind of world, living in this world of change. And as you well know, we resist it by, by holding on, pushing away, trying to manage control, all of that, that that's clinging. So that's what we're talking about letting go of, not letting go of things or experience because they're already gone. When the Buddha talked about clinging, he um, often divided up this world of experience in different ways. So one way that you've heard a lot about is the five aggregates, the five aggregates of clinging, even called that. Another way that he uh, divided up experience was into the six senses. And actually he got quite precise and divided those six into three more each, so 18 things. (laughs) The six uh, sense bases, so the ear, the eye, the tongue, the nose, the body, and the mind. In Buddhism, the mind is, or the mind-heart, that's the same word used. It's, um, it's a sense base. It's treated like a sense, like the other five senses. So we have the six sense bases. We have the six sense objects. So sights, sounds, smells, tastes, body sensations. And then the objects of mind, um, thoughts, emotions and the six sense consciousnesses, so that each um, sense base has a corresponding sense consciousness. So we have hearing consciousness, seeing consciousness, tasting consciousness, smelling consciousness, um, tactile consciousness, and um, mind consciousness. I'm going to just simplify and talk about the six sense bases, or the six sense experiences but we um, will also get a little bit more into these 18, too. So I'm going to start with a little bit of theory, and then I hope to get really practical about what does it mean at these different 
sense doors or these different sense bases, what does it mean to experience clinging and to experience non-clinging? So the theory part, I'm going to take, I think it's six, five or six steps of the the 12 steps of dependent origination. I'm going to take what I think is the juiciest part. It's um, definitely the part the Buddha talked about where there's the possibility of transformation. So we start, the place we're going to start is um, there is this being or these six sense uh, bases. Body, mind. This exists. (laughs) Because this exists, body, mind, six sense bases, contact happens. Because contact exists, or because contact happens, feeling tone exists. Because feeling tone happens, Um, craving exists. Because craving happens, clinging exists. Because clinging happens, um, becoming exists. So those are the steps that we're going to kind of look at. I'll go back. We'll back up. That was fast. So we have this, um, these six sense bases, right? And uh, we have, basically we have this alive body here. And because of that, we have contact, sense contact. We, um, these senses are impinged upon, you could say, by life, by the world. According to Buddhism, a moment of contact, or a moment of life, basically, is the coming together of a sense base, sense door, I mean, sense object and sense consciousness. So a moment of, of life would be sound. So these waves, there's waves <laughs> coming through the air, right? So sound hits the ear door. Consci- he- hearing consciousness is ignited, and that's, that's experience. And that life is just a succession of these experiences that there's these... Um, Sense objects meeting the sense base, igniting sense consciousness. So forms, I, seeing consciousness. Sounds, ear, hearing consciousness. Tongue, taste, tasting consciousness, and so forth. In each moment of contact, there is a feeling tone. There exists a feeling tone. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And you could say that this feeling tone is the, um, I've heard it described as the first impression that that contact makes. So the first impression is either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And every moment that that happens, it's happening very, very, very rapidly. What's interesting is that it really has nothing to do with the sense object. Or I wouldn't, no, you can say, you can't say it has nothing to do with the sense object. It has to do with the, the coming together of the sense base, sense object, sense consciousness. We like to blame the object, but it's really um, not that simple. 
Greg likes to say that the object is innocent. I like the way <laughs> he says that. It's not the object's fault <laughs> if it's pleasant or unpleasant because that's not what's happening. The, the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral is is the impression at the, the moment of contact. That's That's what's happening. So without mindfulness, we fall into automatic conditioning of reacting to the feeling tone. You've already heard this, right? So without mindfulness, if it's pleasant, we crave it, we want it. If it's unpleasant, we want to get rid of it, which is still wanting, just another flip side of the same coin, but we want to manage it. (laughs) And if it's neutral, um, we just kind of space out around it. If we're not mindful of this process, the, the craving, or the craving and aversion, which we're just going to call craving, can fall, those two can fall under the, the one uh, category. If we're not mindful of this, then we start holding on, so clinging. It's like it becomes more um, hardened, you could say, or ossified. So clinging then happens. So, it, so it's getting tighter. <laughs> and then out of the clinging, our whole sense of self And who we are, what we are, all of that evolves out of that. And then it's said that this whole process is grounded in ignorance, uh, not understanding the truth of the way things are. So misunderstanding life, unskillful view, not understanding the Four Noble Truths, not understanding karma. That that kind of keeps this whole process going. However, (laughs) the good news is that we can bring in mindfulness and that that gives us the opportunity to cut this chain of conditioning to... hmm, Cut it off before it uh, goes all the way, all the way before it continues. And so feeling tone is considered one of these places where we have the, um, that where awareness or mindfulness has the potential to just stop the whole process. As I said, the, without mindfulness, the feeling tone leads to craving with mindfulness, if we can just know pleasant as pleasant, unpleasant as unpleasant. We can see that sometimes, we can't make it happen, but sometimes the mind doesn't go any further than that. Perhaps you've had that experience. It's just pleasant. Doesn't go into craving, doesn't go into clinging and becoming the whole business. Or it's just unpleasant. Just to have a glimpse that those, that pleasant doesn't have to be married to craving, that unpleasant doesn't have to be married to aversion, just to have a glimpse of that is really, um, I, I personally, I remember my first glimpse of that, and it was life-altering. It was like, wow, something can be unpleasant, and I don't have to be averse to it. <laughs> That's big. <laughs> Same with something's pleasant. I don't have to chase after it. It's like that, that, that can make a huge difference. 
So that's one place that we can uh, transform this whole cycle of samsara, of suffering. If we kind of get into the grasping and aversion, because that also happens quite often, even when we're uh, trying to be mindful, right? Pleasant uh, leads to craving. The unpleasant leads to, leads to um, aversion. We can just be with that. If we can be mindful of that experience, that's another place we can stop it from moving on further to clinging and becoming, to further hardening. So we have these two places we can really check it out, the feeling tone and the um, craving clinging. And mindfulness is, um, gives us a chance to transform this cycle of samsara or this automatic conditioning um, gives the opportunity for it to be transformed into freedom. It's so amazing what mindfulness can do. It really is. You, you can't say that you do it. It's, it's awareness or mindfulness does it. This just paying attention brings in all kinds of new opportunities, new possibilities. It's really how we learn, just by paying attention. I'm going to be like Dante last night. 20 minutes are almost already gone. I feel like I just started. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about clinging and uh, non-clinging. What do we mean by clinging? Like, we talk about it a lot, but what does it actually mean? So part of our exploration is to understand what clinging feels like, to explore it. So perhaps we feel it as like uh, some constriction or contraction in the mind or the heart. I'll often feel it that way. Sometimes very subtle, sometimes very strong. Sometimes it might be the whisper of a kind of thought, like, can I make this stay, or I want more, or (laughs) something related to craving or clinging. Uh, We may experience it as stress or tension. If we're struggling, that's a pretty sure sign that there's some kind of craving, clinging going on. Perhaps we notice it in the way we're lost in experience or overly involved. If there's a lot of drama around something happening, you can be pretty sure there's probably some clinging going on there. Or stickiness, when something feels really sticky. That's clinging. Well, what about non-clinging? We talk about that. What, what, what's, what's that feel like? Or what's that about? How do we experience that? So perhaps we might notice a spaciousness of heart and mind. A sense of lightness or non-restriction an unobstructed heart. There's no sense of obstruction there. Openness, connectedness. Or perhaps we feel it as a sense of utter relaxation, relief of stress. Not sticky, 
when non-clinging is present, there tends to be a simplicity and clarity to our sense experience, a little bit perhaps like the snow and sun this morning, that crispness and clarity. So this is part of our exploration too. What is the experience of non-clinging in the heart and mind? In this exploration, it's important not to label clinging as bad and non-clinging as good. That will be our tendency sometimes. No, that's not, the, that's not a helpful way to look at it. Clinging is suffering and non-clinging is freedom from suffering. But you see that that has a, a different tone to it than the idea that um, clinging is bad, because then we think, oh, it's bad, I have to get rid of it. <laughs> and non-clinging is good, I have to get it somehow. Um, but if we think that clinging is suffering, it almost calls forth more a sense of compassion or some uh, maybe perhaps willingness to explore, more of a willingness to explore. The other thing that we might find happening is that um, we decide, okay, I'm not going to cling. We're like, okay, I'm going to do it now. I'm not going to cling. <laughs> it's kind of an oxymoron. It kind of doesn't work. <laughs> you can't make a not doing something happen. Because basically, with, with non-clinging, it's like we're not picking it up. We're not appropriating it. We're not getting all drama around it. Um, you can't make that happen. You can't make a not happen, can you? I don't think so. So rather than trying to make non-clinging happen, we set this up, this is good, and I'm going to make it happen. The pathway is to explore whatever our experience is, whether it's clinging or non-clinging, whatever is happening, to get curious about that. There's already freedom there if we're curious, right? I remember um, a, a few years ago I was writing some talk about craving or clinging and um, I was teaching in Ohio. I had a young assistant with me. She was helping out with yoga. And um, so I was, at dinner I was kind of chatting with her about what I was going to talk about, about clinging. And she's like, I like clinging. It, it makes me feel better. Kind of. <laughs> I just loved that. First of all, just the, re- the refreshing honesty, right? I love clinging. Or I like clinging. She didn't say love. I like clinging. It makes me feel better. Well, it doesn't make us feel better. There, you know, in some ways it does. Like gives us some illusion of control, right? We like that. We like that illusion that we can control this wild, wild world. But then she added the kind of like, uh-huh, kind of. Because if we really explore clinging closely, we, we do see that it's a state of stress. And so kind of that price for the illusion of control is, is stress. Maybe a hardening of being. Dukkha. Dukkha, definitely, right? But we explore this for ourselves. We don't have to take anybody's word for it. 
And besides, understanding it intellectually is not going to do us any good whatsoever. We need to see it within our own being to absorb it um, within our own being. So the liberation of heart and mind, this liberation of non-clinging, comes from really exploring our own experience in the present moment and trusting the power of awareness to learn. We let awareness do the work. All right, so let's get into some of these uh, sense experiences and look at what clinging uh, and non-clinging might look like. So sometime last year, um, so we'll start with the body, sensing in the body. So sometime last year, uh, I noticed a a new pain in my hip joint. And uh, we have arthritis in my family and osteoporosis and all those lovely things. So I felt the pain, and um, then I started to worry about it, right? That's what we do. These thoughts about the future, and I noticed that I had some thoughts. And, and it, you know how crazy the mind can get it? As Joseph says, it has no shame. And, and it, <laughs> it was like, you know, I'm going to be unable to walk in the woods, which I love to do so much, and I'm going to have to have, you know, hip replacement surgery, and I know somebody who had that, and the recovery took a long time, and it doesn't work for everybody, and right, you know, clinging. <laughs> That's clinging, right? So what, what happens is there's these sensations in this body, which even we can break that down further. There's these elements coming together in a certain um, uh Uh, manner in this physical body creating some sensations. So maybe we're feeling hardness or pressure or aching. And um, then we we glom onto that, right? And we get, um, we cling to it. One way we cling is we make up a, a, a big story about it. So we want to investigate, like, where's the problem here? Really, where is the problem? So is the pain in the hip, is that the problem? There's a Zen teacher, um, Sansanim. Actually, I think that's the title. I can't remember which name he is. And so on, Sansanim, I think. He used to be in the Providence Zen Center. And he said, you make problem, you have problem. <laughs> that kind of puts it simple. You know, we make a problem out of these sensations. And then, the, the, so there's the, the, the craving and the wanting and then clinging and then, uh, then, we, and then we've made a whole me in the future. I've become in the future. How am I, I'm going to be in the future? It's a lot of stress. The truth of the moment is unpleasant sensations. Now this doesn't mean that I ignore the fact that I need to take care of this body. This is quote-unquote, mine, on on some level. (laughs) I have to take care of it, um, and I do what needs to be done. So uh, I make an appointment with a physical therapist or whatever. But it also points to the freedom that comes if we're able to just be with sensation or be with unpleasantness and stop there. 
The Buddha talked about adding fuel to a fire. He said that um, if you add fuel to a fire, it'll burn. We know that, right? If you add logs to a fire, it'll burn. So all of that story, the story about what might happen because of my hip, that's like adding logs to the fire. So we're stoking the fires of, of clinging. And then if you quit adding logs to the fire, what happens? Goes out, dies down, goes out. So mindfulness basically means as we quit, quit adding logs to the fire, we let it die down. We can also explore this, so, so interestingly also the pain went away on its own. <laughs> I didn't do anything about it, it just went away. These bodies do that kind of thing, right? I think it's our strongest attachment in many ways. Well, thoughts, we're pretty attached to those too. But we're quite attached to our bodies and so it's easy to, to flip out and um, cling to these sensations. I remember my first long retreat here, I had a pain in my side and before I was done I thought I had ovarian cancer. Just... Uh, <laughs> Mind has no shame. <laughs> but here is a story about ovarian cancer. There's, um, I want to read a story from a, a Zen uh, teacher from uh, the West Coast. I'm not sure where, California, probably. It's really a beautiful description of taking these teachings into, okay, so a pain in my hip relatively minor, right, in the scheme of things. But what about if we have a serious illness or a chronic pain? What then? The story really, um, it's a little intense at the beginning. I hope it's not too intense for you, but it's very, you'll see it's quite inspiring by the end. So she's talking about um, her treatments for chemotherapy and how she was put in the hospital And she says, they shot my belly full of toxic drugs until I labored just to take an air. I couldn't lie down or sit with this enormous belly on top of me. I could only walk. For hours I staggered up and down the hospital corridors, pushing the IV stand ahead of me and occasionally stumbling with exhaustion against the wall. Finally, in the middle of the night, a nurse with tears in her eyes cut me loose from the IV and I walked free. The next morning I thought, Dear God, what do you have to do to bring tears to the eyes of an oncology nurse? I went home on the third day and chemo hell continued. I couldn't breathe deeply, eat, or drink. I lived in a primal animal realm in which I was a creature without thought patterns or discriminative judgment, experiencing sensations and emotions that passed through in a constant stream. For twelve days I lay on my couch, laboriously breathing in and out, enveloped in a gestalt of pain and fear. Yet simultaneous to that misery was the most beautiful autumn I'd ever seen in my life, happening right outside my room in a grove of maples and redwoods. The slanting light, characteristic of Northern California autumns, dramatically showcased the reds, golds, apricots, and browns of the evolving plants. As dawn broke each morning, sunbeams penetrated the windows along my eastern wall, progressively highlighting the dark wood of my chair and table, the threads of my blanket, the reds and blues of my rug, and my waiting body. 
At such ecstatic times, I felt as if I were being lifted and carried right through the windows into the air on a heavy linen sheet borne by the sweet-faced angels that used to illustrate the turn-of-the-century hymn sheets. My world was full, lush, and compelling. When I had my hip replaced two decades ago, life before and after the surgery was completely different. Life before was one flowing whole, but until I healed, life after surgery felt mismatched. This time, however, there has been no rent in the fabric of my life. The days before the tumor surgery and the days after continue to be all of a piece. I see students, I write lectures, I get cut open, I eat jello, I receive visitors, I feel as sick as a barfing dog, I pace the corridors, I ride home with the passenger seat all the way down, and so on, to the experience of golden apricot colors, helplessness, dread, and being born on a sheet carried by angels. You can just feel the flow, right, and that description, the um, ability to just be with it all as it flows through. Not getting too caught up. Not, not the, the clinging is the getting caught up, right? So you can feel that sense of non-clinging permeating that um, experience. Let's move on. How about clinging to seeing? So that was the body, one of the sense doors, right? Now the sense door of seeing. Two days ago, I was in the woods, uh, walking in the woods. And I came to an overlook. This was over near my home on my day off. And it was that foggy day. I think it was Wednesday. And, um, and I came to this overlook, and it just oh, it was so beautiful, the... Um, the silhouettes of the trees and the fog. And um, so I was noticing, seeing, and then there was this tiny whisper of a, of, a, of a sentence. It was almost not even fully formed, but it was this whisper, and it was, how can I make this last? And I was like, oh, clinging. So I was interested, right? Oh, clinging. And then I could even feel like there was tension in my eyes like with the seeing, because of the, the clinging. So I went back to just seeing, and then there was this other whispered thought in my mind. It was, it won't last. I can't make it. Then there was this stab of disappointment. It's like I could feel it in my heart. It was just like, oh. And then it was gone, and it was just seeing, and it was just pleasant, and there was no clinging, just being there. So that's a kind of exploration that we might do. As you, you can see from that story, that I didn't try to make non-clinging happen. <laughs> I didn't make clinging bad. It was just like really looking closely to see what was happening. And then the disappointment. The disappointment's considered wisdom. It's considered... Um, well, let me read something to you from uh, Trungpa Rinpoche. Disappointment is a good sign of basic intelligence. It cannot be compared to anything else. It is so sharp, precise, obvious, and direct. If we can open them, we suddenly begin to see that our expectations are 
irrelevant compared with the reality of the situations we are facing. Charlotte Joko Beck, another one of my favorite teachers, how did she say? As she said that um, like disappointment is like a basic part of practice. And what we have to see over and over again is that even everything we get disappoints us. Why? It's not going to last. That was the dis. That was that stab of disappointment, right? It's like, oh, it's not going to last. But if we get that, then we let go. We see that clinging is futile. So that disappointment is actually intelligent. So when you come back in the hall, you had a great sitting. You come back, you're ready for your next great sitting, right? Doesn't happen. Things have changed, and you're like disappointed. It's like great, good. Be like, be like mindfully disappointed because then you learn something from that. You learn, oh, wow. You learn that holding on doesn't, uh, doesn't work. I find disappointment so interesting. I like it in some ways. I mean, I don't like to be disappointed, but I like the truth of it. It's part of practice. All right, let's move on to hearing. Um, I have a great story for you on uh, clinging and non-clinging with hearing. This is from Ajahn Amro, uh, his book, Small Boat, Great Mountain. Ajahn Chah knew that cutting yourself off was not the place of true inner peace. This was because of his own years of trying to make the world shut up and leave him alone. He failed miserably. Eventually, he was able to see that this is not how to find completion and resolution. Years ago, he was a wandering monk living on his own on a mountainside above a village and keeping a strict meditation schedule. In Thailand, they love outdoor night-long film shows because the nights are cool compared to the very hot days. Whenever there was a party, it tended to go on all night. About 50 years ago, public address systems were just starting to be used in Thailand and every decent event had to have a PA going. It's still that way, I know from personal experience. It blasted as loud as it possibly could all through the night. Yes, this is true. (laughs) One time, Ajahn Chah was quietly meditating up on the mountain while there was a festival going on down in the village. All the local folk songs and pop music were amplified throughout the area. Ajahn Chah was sitting there seething and thinking, don't they realize all the bad karma involved in disturbing my meditation? (laughs) They know I'm up here. After all, I'm their teacher. Haven't they learned anything? And what about the five precepts? I bet they're boozing and out of control, and so on and so forth. <laughs> clinging. It says clinging at the, at the, at the um, ear door, right? <laughs> Lots of drama. See, another sign that clinging is happening. And then notice that, the, that it's always about me, right? So this is all about him, like my meditation, disturbing my meditation. 
But Ajahn Chah was a pretty smart fellow. As he listened to himself complaining, he quickly realized, well, they're just having a good time down there. I'm making myself miserable up here. No matter how upset I get, my anger is just going to make more noise internally. And then he had this insight. Oh, the sound is just the sound. It's me who's going out to annoy it. If I leave the sound alone, it won't annoy me. It's just doing what it has to do. That's what sound does. It makes sound. This is its job. So if I don't go out and bother the sound, it's not going to bother me. Aha! As it turned out, this insight had such a profound effect that it became a principle that he espoused from that time on. See, this is also a sign of how our deep challenges tend to be what give us these um, insights so we can benefit from them. If any of the monks displayed an urge to try and get away from people and stimulation, the world of things and responsibilities, he would tend to shove them straight into it. He would put that monk in charge of the cement mixing crew or take him to do every house blessing that came up on the calendar. He would make sure that that monk had to get involved in things because he was trying to teach him to let go of seeing meditation as needing sterile conditions. To see, in fact, that most wisdom arises from the skillful handling of the world's abrasions. Ajahn Chah was passing along an important insight. It's pointless to try to find peace through nullifying or erasing the sense world. Peace only comes through not giving that world more substantiality or reality than it actually possesses. is important. I was thinking about I was thinking about it today. Many of us tend to get more reactive around hearing than we do around seeing. Isn't that true? And I think the reason why is because we feel so vulnerable. Like with with seeing you can just close your eyes if you don't want to see something, but with hearing you can't close your ears. And I was thinking about what happens on retreat sometimes. Um, As we sit here and we meditate, um, you guys are getting really open, and sometimes you don't even know how open you are. Like I said, it becomes a new normal. And this openness can leave us with a certain sense of um, vulnerability. Because our usual protections aren't quite as solidly in place as they usually are. And so we can wind up feeling vulnerable. And then the sense impact, the things that happen, especially sounds around the, um, the center, they can... We experience them as very, uh, very unpleasant at times when we feel this way, this vulnerability. I don't think it's actually the sound that's unpleasant to us often. It's the vulnerability. So we try to start controlling the environment as fast as we can. That's what we do when we feel vulnerable. It's like, how can I like, control this so that it's just, it works for me? What's it, what if we can just learn to be with vulnerability? And by vulnerability, I mean that, that um, again, it's like that 
being able to be touched by life, to be able to be touched by life. And so with practice, we, we actually learn that um, we can be vulnerable. And, and the less clinging there is, or the less reactivity, the more that we, we can be that way, we can be that open. But the next time you find that you're freaking out about the something going on here, um, uh, check out whether you're just feeling vulnerable. And if you are, can you just embrace that feeling? Say, oh, hello, I'm here with you. And then if you need to, stabilize. You know, get your feet on the ground, feel your feet on the ground, like, yeah. I know a lot about this because I've learned a lot about reactivity to hearing. Major part of my practice. It's great, really great. I don't think I can get through all six. Let's see here. Let's talk a little bit about um, tasting, the tasting experience. So clinging and non-clinging around um, taste. The last couple of years I've been exploring eating meditation quite a bit. I read a great book by a Zen teacher called uh, Mindful Eating. She talks about seven kinds of hunger. So one kind of, um, so let's get back to just the basic though, the, the tongue and the uh, flavor, coming together of tongue, flavor, tasting consciousness, and perhaps uh, the experience of pleasantness while we eat. It's really interesting to just watch the experience of pleasantness through a whole bite of food, especially when you like, obviously, because... Pleasant has to be one, it'll be one you like. So just to watch like what happens like as the pleasantness grows and then what happens when you just go over the top of the peak of the pleasantness and like where does craving set in? I, I, f- I find it's right over after you peak. <laughs> right when you're starting on the downhill side of the pleasant, it's like, oh no, it's leaving. And so then it's like, I want more. All right? And there's... The, the attachment and the clinging. How can I get more? <laughs> the becoming. And again, the, I find there's like a sense of disappointment there. When you, when you go right over the top, there's this, this sense of disappointment, this crushing disappointment that the pleasantness is going away. And I think it's the basis of a lot of um, addictions is we can't stand the pleasantness to go away. I've done a lot of um, eating meditation with dark chocolate-covered almonds. <laughs> I guess if I have one addiction, that, that is it. And um, <laughs> so just watching, it's, it's so interesting, right? So you have this idea that um, you're eating some and you're getting kind of full, so you say, okay, this will be the last one, right? So I'm eating it, right? This is going to be the last one. And then... Somewhere right after the pleasantness peaks, there'll be this realization, I'm going to eat another one. (laughs) 
you know, it's like right after that pleasant of things, you can just see it. And then, um, right, another one. So what I, so what I learned is um, that before, before I eat the last one, I have to go and put the, um, the dark chocolate almonds somewhere far enough away that when that thought comes after the pleasant it peaks, okay, I want another one, that it's far enough away that I have to walk and get it, and that that gives me enough space <laughs> to like to reevaluate whether I really want to get another um, dark chocolate covered almond. <laughs> it's so funny, the mind. <laughs> now I usually don't keep them at home, but since I've talked about them... <laughs> <laughs> but since I've talked about them in Dharma talks, I get a lot of dark chocolate covered almonds. <laughs> Last spring I mentioned this in a talk, and I have a friend um, who was on the retreat. She's on my board for my small meditation center. So the night the retreat ended, we had a board meeting. So she comes to the board meeting. She gives me a little bag. And inside of it are precisely three dark chocolate covered almonds. <laughs> it was so great, you know, she just had three. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> this was not an attempt to have you guys give me dark chocolate covered almonds. <laughs> just so you know, if I need them, I can buy them. <laughs> anyway, great, great exploration. Okay, we should move on. So the last... Um, <laughs> Enjoy it. Here on retreat, there's lots of uh, opportunities, like lunch today. Wasn't that great? That kale salad? Wow. That was good. So then there's this sixth sense door, and we've talked about this some. There's the sixth sense door of the heart and mind. And so um, it's a sense door, and then its uh, objects are thoughts and emotions. Those are the mind objects. And so we can explore, and we do explore, right? How does clinging present um, with thoughts and emotions? How does non-clinging manifest with thoughts and emotions? So basically clinging (laughs) with thoughts... Well, there's can be that getting lost in them is actually a form of clinging to them or um, believing them, like believing them, be, believing them getting lost in them. That, that, that's another form, the believing part. Or sometimes we make up a story about like who we are based on the kinds of thoughts we, are, we have. So you can see that that's like we're getting into the becoming, right? I'm, I'm a bad person because I have this kind of thought. And that means we're, we're clinging to them. We're giving them a lot more reality than they actually really have. One place I, I um, explore this sometimes is driving. Driving meditation can be very interesting. And sometimes when I drive, let's just say that patience is not one of my best paramis. It's not, I didn't come into this world with like that one fully developed. Um, and so sometimes I have like uncharitable thoughts about <laughs> about other drivers, and um, it's based on, of course, quite little info, <laughs> quite little information. Like maybe one thing they do are their bumper stickers. Have you ever noticed how like you can read somebody's bumper stickers and you can have these thoughts about them? Now I could 
you know, like seeing these uncharitable thoughts, I could have this thought that I'm a bad person. I have mean thoughts, right? But I don't give those thoughts much, especially if I'm mindful, I don't give those thoughts much reality, really. They they don't... um, I recognize that they're just thoughts, that they arise because some certain conditions came together, right? And, and uh, they appear in the mind. But they're not a story about who I am. And um, if I don't cling to them, there's no problem. If I, if I get, you know, dramatic about them, cling to them, let the story evolve, then we might have a problem. I might... I feel like I have to teach them a lesson, you know, road rage, right? I mean, that road rage would be like carrying it to the whole um, extreme of clinging and and becoming and all. You're lucky you don't have to drive right now. (laughs) But your challenging drivers are the other yogis, right? All these judgments we have about them, right? Judgments about each other. How do you hold those thoughts? Do you believe them? Do they say something about who you are? Do you cling to them? Or do you notice, oh, it's a thought. Thinking. No problem. Mind object. Hitting the mind door. Mind uh, consciousness. (laughs) Moment, contact. I would say that one of the main things that have changed for me around thoughts is that my thoughts don't bother me so much anymore. So there's less clinging to them, no problem. Just, it's like a sound. Comes, goes. We are, however, quite, um, we usually cling quite tightly to our thoughts. They, they provide a kind of security. I think, again, it's that sense of security from the vulnerability of being human. And there's sometimes like this sense that we don't really trust that we could respond to life without all that attachment to thinking. But as we practice more, it's, it's first like the thoughts are just like... Uh, completely um, opaque, right? It's just, just sometimes it seems like that's all that's there. And then as we practice more, there's like some space starts coming in. So they start to become more like discrete uh, arisings and passings, or um, there's more space around them, more and more space, which means less and less clinging is happening. And then with all that space, we can respond to the ones... We can respond appropriately, actually. We can respond to the wholesome thoughts by um, uh, perhaps uh, some action that is um, encouraged by them, or we can leave the unwholesome ones alone. Um, uh, That space gives us the ability to respond wisely. Hmm. I have four minutes. We're going to go over two or three, not too many, but a couple minutes over. So emotions. It's similar. Like to notice how we're 
um, clinging to emotions. We cling to the story. Oh, boy, can we watch uh, Becoming, right? We make up a whole story. We're angry at somebody. They did this, and this is why, you know, they weren't, it was unjust to me, and and uh, I'm going to do this now in response, and, right, it gets quite involved. But we can also just be with... Um, Emotions, again, as an arising, we can be with the physical sensations, notice the thoughts, not um, not get quite so involved, right? And with mindfulness, what we'll find then is that, first of all, the, we're way off into becoming, we're way off into story, and then we start catching it a little bit earlier and earlier and earlier, Right? So you could say less and less becoming, more and more mindfulness, less clinging. I told you a while ago about a a note that I wrote. Um, No, I didn't write a note. I saw a note on the board from my ex-boyfriend to this woman <laughs> when I was on retreat or I thought it was that he was his note right and I went through this whole week I described uh, I didn't tell you guys about the whole week um, what I really learned during that week I was so motivated to really understand emotions and thoughts and kind of how they how I got lost in them and so I just got totally interested in like what happened and I would and at the beginning of the week it was like these emotions would come up and I would get really lost in them, so really clinging to them, right? So it'd be loneliness, and I'd just go, oh, way into this loneliness story, unlovable, way into this unlovable story, and um, and uh, so on and so forth. I don't remember the whole series now. Lots of fear, okay, way into the fear story. And then what started to happen um, as the week went on, First, I started to notice that there was a sequence, and it was pretty invariable. It would start with the image of the note, and then it would uh, proceed onwards through thoughts and emotions, but in this kind of... And what started to happen is that I got lost less and less time each time I ran through it. And um, finally, at the end, I would go through the whole sequence in about six seconds. It was fascinating. It would be like... You know, see the note. So see, thought, thought, emotion, thought, emotion, the thought. Done. (laughs) 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 And and basically, it's like I learned um, non-attachment to these emotions. It took me a lot of run-throughs, right? (laughs) But um, they were just arisings, blips, arisings in the mind and the heart. Again, our great challenge is... um, Give us a great opportunity to learn so much. So our um, challenge, if we choose to accept it, is to see when clinging is present, to explore what that is, because we also see that we don't have to cling to clinging, right? That it comes together, passes away. And then to also bring mindfulness and attention when non-clinging is present and to feel that too. It's like we acclimate to non-clinging. We acclimate to that much openness. Because when the, when the heart is, um, when there's more and more freedom from clinging in the heart, what we experience is more openness of heart. 
And you could say more natural luminosity of mind comes through. We, we've, we feel more vulnerable, you could say, without feeling more vulnerable. <laughs> or we are more vulnerable without feeling more vulnerable. We're more able to be touched with life But as we acclimate to that, we have the strength for that much openness. And we feel more connected. So, so it's important to understand that um, this heart and mind of non-clinging is an open, connected kind of heart and mind. So it's not detached. We're not talking about detachment. If, 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 if that's where we're going with our practice, then, then we should really get, get some, um, do some reevaluation. The Tibetan teacher Reggie Ray was once asked, What is enlightenment? And he responded, or he said, <laughs> Responsiveness. So, this heart and mind that of non clinging is one that responds, and, and that response. It usually takes a form of compassion and 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 how can I serve and what can I do to alleviate suffering in this world? The enlightened folks that I know um, they're not detached they're actually um deeply present and um deeply compassionate. So in this way, as we've been saying many times, this practice benefits us, right? There's this uh, increasing freedom of heart and mind. But it's not just about us. Because there's this expression of this heart and mind in the world, in life. This natural expression to care and to respond So let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.